like to think, and I tend to think, a lot about culture. And when I say culture, I'm not necessarily talking about like pop culture. I don't think much about pop culture. Um, I understand that someone named Taylor Swift is very famous. Literally could not tell you anything about her songs. She's dating an NFL player or something. I don't know. But everybody else seems to know. I don't know much about that. I don't think a lot about that. Um, I don't even necessarily mean just like the culture of the world in general, although I do think about that a good bit as it relates to where we are at the end of the age. I think a lot about the culture of the church, particularly the culture of this local church, this local expression of the body of Christ at Acts Church. You can ask uh, the staff, the elders, the lots of people I talk to, and I, it's not uncommon at all for me to talk about sort of culture. And when, I, and when I say culture, I mean, I think about things like, what do we believe? What do we do? How do we do it? How to become more effective at what we do? I think about those things, and I talk about those things a lot. People from our church, people from other churches, regularly talking about that, thinking about that. I, I got a question, I've had this question um, come up before, where people say, why doesn't Acts Church have more people? Why isn't Acts Church just just ministering to, just get an opportunity to minister to just tons and tons of people. You know, we love people. We love the word of God. Like, why don't we have more people? Um, why aren't we multiplying like crazy, getting to minister to more and more people all the time? And I don't know the answer to that question. And frankly, I'm not sure whether it's even the right question to ask. At the end of the day, the scripture makes one thing clear, and that is that God is the one who gives the increase. In 1 Corinthians, there's Bibles in front of you, by the way, if you'd like to use a, a Bible, Bible, as we go through the scripture today, will also be on the screen up here, assuming that the guy back there doesn't fall asleep, which can happen when I preach, so, um, or you can look at it on your phone, however you want to do it, but, but we're going to get into the word this morning, that's a big thing for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Okay, here's the thing. We can do whatever we want to do, but at the end of the day, the increase comes when God wants to bring the increase. And the people that are here are the people God's called to be here, and that's what's important to me. What's important to me is that the people who are here are the people who God's called to be here. God is the one who grows the church, if that's his will, for it to get larger and larger. We are called to be faithful in the Great Commission. And so that's on the wall outside, as many of you saw when you came in, or have seen at some point, or have probably heard me mention it, which I do every other week, probably, a lot. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. We soldier on. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the opposition, regardless of persecution or loss, we soldier on because we have a call. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is with us to the end of the age. Amen, right? He's with us. There's a duty to do the best that we can. And that is why I think about culture, because I want to do the best that we can. I want to make sure we're doing things right. As Dr. David uh, likes to say, or is known to say, you got to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. You got to do the Lord's work the Lord's way. And so that is what we try to do. As the body of Christ, we follow the scripture 
even when it goes against the grain of what we want to do. Because sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it would be easier to do things differently. But we were not called to easy. It's not the call. It's nowhere in here where it goes, your calling is easy. Do what's easy. It's not there. In fact, the opposite is there. We're not called to easy. Earlier this year, I asked a question in a study we did on ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just the study or the theology of the church. What does the Bible say about the church, really, is what ecclesiology is. And we did this. We had the same slide up, and we did this. Um, And I asked this question. The question is, is 2024 going to be about you or about your Savior? Is 2024 going to be about you or about your Savior? And we did a whole thing on that, and I asked the question many times. I do not know how that's going for you. I don't know. But I want to remind you of the question because we have to be reminded of what our lives are for. Not just what our lives are sort of what we're doing. What what are they for? What has God made you for? And so you have to decide, is 2024 going to be about you or about your Savior? And in that message, we talked about ecclesiology in terms of the Great Commission how it relates to us as individuals. So sort of, We talked about our church and what we do. We reviewed, we studied how we ought to receive the teaching of the church, how we ought to give, how we ought to serve. You can go back and watch that one if you want to um, see about that. People love to hear how they ought to give and serve. So if you want to look at that, it's good. Um, we introduced the elders and the staff and talked about what they do and their roles to help equip you and me to serve the Lord in the context of the church. We went through all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot more to ecclesiology. And I want to make sure you know as Christ's body, or as a guest this morning or online, as anyone who's called to Acts Church or is asking the Lord whether you were called to Acts Church, I want you to know why. There are a lot of whys, a lot of reasons why we do what we do. And I realize that for some people, they have not been part of a body like Acts Church. They've been part of other churches or they haven't been part of any church or whatever. They don't know what to expect or they do know what to expect. And we don't always meet those expectations because we sometimes do things differently than what they're used to. I've been to a number of churches in my life. um, And, you know, every church is a little bit different. But I don't want people to be confused as to the whys, as to why we do things the way we do things and why we might do things a little differently than maybe experiences that you've had somewhere else. Lord willing... We're going to walk through three fundamental goals and fundamental hopes of Acts Church, things that we want to do, who we want to be. Um, We are not going to get through them all today. Um, We will get through one and most of another one, Um, but there's three of them. There are three things, and this is part of the question, the answer to the question, who are we? Who are we? People might ask you that, you know, you say, you tell them you go to church and they're like, What's, what's that like? What's, what, is that, what is your church like? What does it do? What are you guys about? And, and these are some of the answers to the questions of what we are all about. Some of the answers of who we're hoping to be in Christ Jesus. So one, we love Jesus. We love Jesus. Two, we love his law. Three, we love you. Those are three fundamental things that we aspire to. As the Lord is transforming each one of us, we're trying to do those things. First, we love Jesus, then we love his law, and then we love you. Now, we love Jesus. Why is that first on our list? Well, because it is Jesus that has made us alive, redeemed us from death and hell, and forgiven us. Pretty easy. 
person to put first on the list. Jesus is first. Everything about the all-glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving God, everything about him is wonderful, and he is first. Our lives are about loving God first. Well, how do we know we're supposed to do that? Well, I have an answer for you. Listen to what Jesus says about this. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And all the, so there were back then, they had the Pharisees, they had the Sadducees, they had the Essenes, okay? And all of them were sort of different groups and did, did the Jewish faith in different ways. The Sadducees had come, Jesus had shut them down because he is so good. You got to read the Gospels, folks, if you have not read the Gospel. He's so good. But he had shut them down, so the Pharisees thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. Then one of them, a lawyer, this is what happens. This is why people don't like lawyers, okay? For those of you who don't know why people are laughing, I'm I'm an attorney by by trade originally until the Lord called me to redeem all of that as a pastor. um, (laughs) And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He said, look, the scripture and everything it's telling you to do, all the things that are there, they all hang on this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's it. But the first one is you got to love God. He tells us as truly as he tells us all things, everything Jesus says is true, that this is the first and great commandment. There is no commandment for you or for me that comes before this. Okay? If you think that there's anything that comes before this, you've got your life wrong. There is no commandment that comes before this one. So this is what we do as his church, as his body. We love him first. We love God first. Everything we do must flow first from our love for God. It cannot flow from anything else or it's broken and it will break us. It will break others. If we don't start right, we aren't going to end right. C.S. Lewis said something like, if you start a math problem with the wrong formula, you will not, except by accident, end up with the right solution, right? You got to start right if you want to get the thing right at the end of the day. When we're trying to decide how we should live, how we should act, how we, as a church, ecclesiologically, you like that? That's a long one. How are we to be? How are we to do? Well, first, we have to love God. We can't begin wrong, not loving God first, and end up in the right place. So Christ's church must start by loving Christ, by loving God. This may seem very obvious to you. But if we don't start there, if we raise anything above God, whether that's our own personal comfort, our own personal desires, another person other than God, another thing, if we do any of that, we will fail to follow the Lord and we will fail our king, period. We have to love God first. Everything else is idolatry. Well, how does that work itself out in the church? Well, it means that there are things that we may want to do that we may not be able to do. And there are things that we don't want to do that we may have to do. And that's part of loving God. It's kind of like loving your wife, okay? You may have to take out the trash when you were just getting comfortable, right? You were just, you sat down, you know, whatever, but she asked you to do it and you love her. So you get up and you take the trash out, right? You don't want to do that, but you do it because you love her. Or it's like loving your friend. Your friend wants you to help him move, but you want to chill out. 
You don't want to go help them move, but you show up anyway and help because you love your friends. Sometimes we do things that we don't necessarily want to do because love is what's dictating our actions, right? I may want to have a disc golf club for the church where we all go disc golfing because I like disc golf. So why doesn't everybody like disc golf? But if that's not where God's leading, we don't have a disc golf club because my love for disc golf can't come above what God's calling the church to do and my love for him first, right? I'm not saying those things are inconsistent. I'm still considering the disc golf club. No, I'm not really. really. You may want to sing a different song than one of the ones we sang today, but you didn't get to because that's not where we felt led by God today. And you got to love God and say, that's okay. That's okay. You may not want to get in your brother in Christ's business when he tells you he's texting a woman from work inappropriately. And you just want to be like, I don't want to get involved in that. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to sound judgmental. But he's a brother in Christ. He's part of the body of Christ in church. You don't want to have to get involved in that, but you have to. Because if you love God first, you're not going to put your discomfort or his discomfort in front of doing what God has called you to do. It's too bad that you don't want to. A loving God, right, means doing things we don't always like all the time. Because he knows what's best, and we don't. I promise you, we don't. I myself do not, and just about anyone I've ever met, they don't either. And if they do, it's usually because they're doing what this, what the Bible says. Okay, We don't. We love Jesus. We love Jesus first for a number of reasons. One, we love Jesus first because Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He is God. He told us this without equivocation. Matthew 26, 62 through 64. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? This is when Jesus is being, he's been brought in front of the high priest. This is after he's been betrayed. And he's staying silent. He says, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now, um, there are people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible. Listen, I could bring you verse after verse, but here's a very clear one. Are you the Son of God? It is as you say. He's the Son of God. Son of God and Son of Man. He is the Son of God. He is God. That's why we love him, because he's God. That means that Jesus is the one who made us. Jesus is the one. He, he is God. Right? We love God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We love God first. And we also love Jesus first because he first loved us. He loves us. Listen to Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is a question that does not need an answer. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Those are all rough things. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. Now, this is Paul writing through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and all these things he lists, a lot of these things he's been through. Okay, Shipwrecked a couple of times. right? Stoned and left for dead. Like just persecuted. Got through, went through so much stuff. And this is what he says. This is what his, he was persuaded of, what he believed. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why, is, why do we love God first? Because this is how he loves us. He loves us so much that it, it will never go away. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. He moved first, we respond. We love him because he died for our sins, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we love him because he will love us forever, as we already read in Matthew 28.20, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And here we are at the end of the age, okay? Um, the age, end of the age has been longer than I'd like because I'm ready to go. I am, I, my, my ticket is already punched, so I'm ready to go. You're probably ready to go, right? The world isn't doing real well. But it's not just to the end of the age. It's forever. Listen to this. I'm going to read you a, do I have my glasses? I do. Old man. Let's get into Revelation 21. That's at the end of the Bible, for those of you who are not familiar with where the books are. It's right at the end. It's the last one. It says this. Start at the beginning of that chapter. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. This is a forever thing. This is a forever thing. We're going to dwell with him. He's going to dwell with us, and we shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give it the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. This is, this is our future. This is our future. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a promise to us, and the reason, one of the reasons why we love Jesus so much is because he has told us he will love us forever. He will take care of us forever. Those of us who are in him will not taste the second death in hell. Many of us have done some or all of those things that were listed there in verse 8 at the end. But we have been forgiven because we believed in Jesus Christ. And that forgiveness is why we love him. And if you have not, if you're not in Christ, and you're like, yeah, I've got stuff on that list. I don't want the second death. Well, here's the deal. I have really good news for you. Christ died for you and rose again. And because of that, you can have eternal life. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be with the people who every tear will be wiped away and there'll be no more death, no sorrow, no pain. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes into righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. You can be saved from that. No longer being in the other list because your sins have been forgiven, they've been wiped away, they're no more. 
And those who do this, confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And those who will not confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will not be saved. If you have not done this, today is the day for you. You can't guarantee that you'll live another minute, another hour, another day. Part of loving Jesus first is me telling you this. All of this. I literally did not want to include verse 8 as I was preparing the sermon. I was like, oh, feels harsh. Feels harsh talking about hell, talking about that Jesus not only promises life to those who will accept him and, and receive his forgiveness, but he also promises death and hell to those who will not. It's not fun. It's not fun to talk about. But if I don't tell you this, I'm not loving God with all my heart because God wants you to know him and to know the scriptures. And he wants you to be warned, if you're not in him, about what's going to happen. And so if I'm going to love God, I've got to do that. He wants us to do what is in the scriptures because we are called to follow Jesus and to obey all that he has commanded. All that he has commanded. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Who loves him? Those who keep his commandments. You have his commandments. If you keep them, you love him. If you don't keep them, you don't love him. This is what leads us to our second fundamental desire and hope that we do as Christ's church. We love his law. We love his law. Psalm 119, you can read it, and it's just like, oh, I love your law. It's so good. I want to know it more. I want more. But this is when Jesus talks about, I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to know what you've called me to do. God's given us the scripture. He's literally revealed his word to us. He didn't have to do that, but he did. We don't have to wonder what Jesus has commanded us from the Father. The Holy Spirit made sure it was written down. He says, everything I'm giving you is from the Father. And also, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring all this to your remembrance. He's going to teach you. Right? We have all of that. So, we as a church look to the Scripture and follow what it says, even when it is hard to do. And that is how we love Jesus first, and that is how we love his law and the Scripture. Even when it is hard to do. He told us that we love him when we keep his commandments. That means something very important. We do not substitute our judgment for God's judgment in the scriptures. Now, if you have never done this, you are a much better person than me because I have certainly done it. I have certainly in the past substituted my judgment for God's judgment. The scripture is clear and I try to make it not clear. I try to make it less clear. There's in, in the law... When I was in law school, I remember learning about all the states and the way that they would, the way they'd interpret things. And, and one of the things that was kind of a standard coming through the common law, like from England all the way through, was this idea that if you had a contract, right, you've got a, a contract that's written down, signed at the bottom, and you can read it in what they'd say the four corners of the document. You can read it and it makes sense, then whatever it says is what it says. And you don't get to, for instance, bring testimony out 
about what you really meant when you wrote it. You don't get to do that. You don't get to say, well, that, that word didn't really mean that because it's understandable from the four corners of the document. And then what happened was we started to have these rules about what if there was something that was unclear, it's ambiguous, and we weren't really sure what it meant. Well, then we could go and you could talk about, you know, uh, you know we, we, I think what we meant was this, or the way we've done it in the past is and you have all these ways of dealing with it. And, and most people, most states follow that rule, right? If it's clear from the document, you don't get to talk about what you were doing. The judge is going to look at that document. He can read it or she can read it. She knows, she can see what it says and then just, that's it. That's the ruling. But then there was this one state, California. Are you surprised? In the law, just so you know, I went to law school in the south, in the southeastern United States. And, and you know, I don't know if this is true ever, but a lot of people, when they hear that there's a minority position on a particular legal thing, like everybody thinks one thing, and there's a state who thinks something else, it's just so often that it's California, okay? And what California said is that even if what's in the document is very clear, and you could make no mistake about it, you can actually have testimony that creates an ambiguity. In other words, I can say, yes, yes, judge, listen, I know that word says I shall, sell for $100. But I'm telling you, what we really meant was I shall sell for $75. We said 100 but we, all, we, we talk like that or whatever. And, and, then, and then once you create the ambiguity, then you can have all the testimony that you could never have before. You create an ambiguity. And I will just tell you, going back to what I'm saying about the scriptures and not substituting our judgment for God's, what we do sometimes is we look at the scripture and in the four corners of that document, it is very clear what we're called to do. And we go, well, depends on what the definition of is is, right? Older people know what I'm talking about. Younger people are like, I don't know what that is. I wasn't born back then. Um, Bill Clinton, you can look. Don't look it up. It's a terrible thing. Don't look it up. It depends on, you know, what does this word mean? And what about, well, is there a possibility that the culture, you know, can we, can we find a way around doing the thing that the scripture tells me we have to do? There, you know, you have this stuff in 2 Timothy about, um, about women teaching in the church. You know, I was going to go there today. See, I'm going to see who I can make mad today. Here we go. There's this whole thing about women teaching in the church, okay? And what has happened if you go out there and you, and you do the studies with all these different people that are out there. You have people that fall into different camps on that issue, but one of the camps out there says that passage doesn't mean what it says it means, which you can clearly read what it says, because there's this cultural thing going on, and it was that particular church had this thing that maybe, the, except the problem with that is, is right underneath that, it takes the reason for it all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so, I'm not sure, but I think the culture in Eden was different than the culture in Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring at the time. Uh, and so people will make ambiguities where they don't exist. The fact is, it's just a hard scripture. There are hard scriptures. There are things that are difficult. We cannot substitute our judgment for what the scripture says. And as a church, if we're going to love God first then the next thing we're going to do is love his word, love his law, love what he says. We don't get to twist it to make things easy. 
We can't decide that we know better because after all, it's 2024. I'm just now starting to write the date correctly. It takes me about a month or two these days. Another thing I've seen is people not following the scripture because they think that God wants something. And so it doesn't matter how we get there. If the goal is godly, the way we get to that goal kind of doesn't matter. He doesn't care how we get there so long as we get there because it's a godly goal after all. In ethical philosophy, we would describe that as the ends justifying the means. Meaning that the thing there, we know we really want. And so therefore, whatever we do, as long as we get there, is justified. It's automatically justified. It doesn't matter if it was wrong. Uh, Let me tell you one way that could work itself out in the life of the church. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I'm not saying I have. I'm just telling you, things like this might happen. We can see from the scripture that God wants us to make disciples. And we really want to make disciples. Christians who love Jesus, we want to make disciples. We want to see people get saved. We want to baptize them right up here. We want to teach them all that Christ has commanded. We want to see that happen. We want to see more and more and more people. We see the church growing in Acts. We see the church growing for 2,000 years. And we want to see the church grow. We want to see new people get into the church, right? That could make us desire to have sort of a large church. More disciples for Jesus, right? Then we could reason that to get a large group, we should focus on things that people like and not on things that they don't like. It's all fine so far, so long as the things that people like are biblical and the things that they don't like aren't necessary to teach from the Scripture. But it doesn't really work because the fact is teaching the Scripture truly requires you to do more than just talk about things that people like. It's more than just encouragement. It's a very famous church, a very large, large church, where the pastor is very clear that he doesn't feel called to sort of teach about the hard stuff that his job is to, is to encourage. He's got a big smile. You can probably figure out who he is. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here to judge him. I'm, not his, I'm just going to tell you that to say, I'm going to tell you things that encourage you, but not tell you the rest of the scripture is not loving God first. I don't see how it could be. Or at least it's not for me. I feel very much that if I'm going to love God first, I've got to do more than just encourage and tell people things they like. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. You've probably heard this verse before. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, and we're going to have a list of things, for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there's a lot more than encouragement in that verse. There's a lot more than I'm going to tell you things that make you feel good in that verse. There is reproof. Now, we don't use the word reproof a lot. I, I doubt that you guys are saying the word reproof in your normal conversations. Um, I use the cinnamon. Sir, c- cinnamon? Mm. <laughs> I'm on keto right now, and I said cinnamon, and now I'm like, mm-hmm, that's... End this sermon and get me a cinnamon roll. Uh, synonym search on Microsoft Word while I was typing my notes for this sermon. Um, synonyms are just words that mean the same thing or something similar, right? So reproof was there um, because I knew that some of us may not really understand the word. Actually, I got a better understanding of it too because it's not a common word. Here's some words that mean something similar to reproof criticism, blame, accusation, rebuke. Scolding, reprimand, admonition, chastisement, ticking off, and dressing down. 
What's the scripture good for? Criticism, blame, accusation. That, he's saying that's part of what this is good for. Why? Because it takes more than encouragement to make us Christ-like. Period. It takes more than feel-good promises of God, which are great, and I love them, and they're joyful, and I could not love grace more. I live in it. But it takes more than that to equip men and women to love and live like Jesus, to serve like Jesus, to work like Jesus, to suffer persecution like Jesus, to have joy like Jesus, to live like Jesus. It takes a lot more than encouragement. I tell you all the good things, and I make you smile. And then what happens when something bad happens? And you got to go through something. And I've built you up. I have not fully equipped you. I've only given you that when things are good, that's what Christianity is. Well, I can't do that. And that's not what the scripture does. And that's not loving God. That's not loving the scripture. And it's not loving you. It takes all these things. It takes reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. It's not loving God to ignore the hard part of teaching in order to build church attendance. So if you're wondering why we don't kind of, let's maybe ignore verse 8 of Revelation 21. Because God put it there. In that section, it's part of the other part. Love God, serve him, receive his grace and forgiveness. You get all these things forever with him. Oh, the love, the joy, the hope. Don't do those things. Reject him. And it's the second death. It's the lake of fire. Prepare for Satan and his, his angels that left. It wasn't even made for you. But if you'll reject him, that's the only place there is for you to go. It's not loving God to ignore the hard part. Paul writes a letter to Timothy. It's a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit that Scripture. Timothy at this time is, is a pastor. He's a young pastor. The church of Ephesus, okay? This is near, uh, this is kind of like the southwestern, sort of near the coast in what's now the modern country of Turkey. And Paul instructs this young pastor. This is in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. It says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now, he's not saying, I suggest to you, I encourage you, I anything. He says, I charge you. This is the charge to a pastor, to a young pastor, pastoring the church at Ephesus. What is this charge that he gives him? By God, by the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living dead in his period and at his kingdom. This is what he says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Then they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Now, as a pastor, and one who, who has the honor and the very serious, fearful task of teaching you the word, I have to take this very, very seriously. This inspired by the Holy Spirit to a pastor. You got to do it. You got to do it right. You can't be afraid of them. You can't be afraid of whether or not you're going you're gonna to get the things that you would like to see or whether it's going to be easy. You got to do the thing. It tells them to preach the word, to convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. And I will tell you, 
There's a lot of long-suffering. There's a lot of long-suffering. And it's okay. Because you know what I know? God has been so long-suffering with me. So long-suffering. Still long-suffering. I need his grace every day. Paul tells him to endure afflictions, to be watchful, and to do the work of an evangelist. All of those things are going to be true. You want to follow Jesus, you're going to end up with this kind of stuff if you're preaching the word in season and out of season. Biblically, evangelism isn't about telling people what they want to hear. It is about telling them the truth. Evangelism is not come to Jesus and you get stuff. You know, he says they'll turn aside to fables. Let me tell you a, a, a famous fable. Come be a Christian and love Jesus, and by his power you will be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and God's got a breakthrough for you. And I'll sell you a prayer cloth. $9.99. That is a fable. It's sick. There's nothing biblical about it at all. You know what the gospel sounds like? You are going to hell, but Jesus has died for you. You are going to hell, but Jesus has died for you. You don't have to. He has done everything for you. He has given himself completely for you. He has risked everything. He has taken on everything. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame for you. You're the joy set before him. That's the gospel. Not you're okay and things will get even better. You are wretched sinners, and God is perfect and has made you for so much more. And he, he's the only one, your creator is the only one who can also be your redeemer. No one else could have done it, and he did it for us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. If we love Jesus and we love his law, if we love the Bible, we cannot build the church in any other way but the biblical way. As Dr. David says again, we do the Lord's work the Lord's way. That means it doesn't matter what the end is over here, that we, oh man, I would really like to see us be able to do this. I'd like to be able to do that. Or I'd like to be able to have this or have that. Nope. If you can't do it biblically all the way across, you don't do it. People will sometimes have like uh, their, their Resurrection Sunday, Easter services, whatever, and they'll like give away two cars. Which, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't give away a car. It does say they were all in one accord. Dad jokes, that's free. Um, well, you can throw a little something extra in for that. Um, I, I don't care if you want to give away a car, but I'll just tell you this. You're going to win them to what you win them with. So I'm going to tell you the truth so that if you come to the Lord and you come to this church and you become his disciple and you get baptized, that you understand that what we're going to continue to do is tell you the truth. We're not here to, to provide unending comfortableness. Comfort of the Spirit? Yes. Comfortable? I hope not. You will never grow in that environment. You will never grow in that environment. We look to the example we have of Christ in the Scripture, a suffering servant who loved the Father and did his will. A powerful preacher of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And we look at the church inscription, we see what Paul writes to Timothy, and we see the need for truth. And we love God, and we love Scripture by teaching truth. All of us fail, guys. All of us. But let me tell you something. That doesn't make truth all of a sudden up for debate. 
We have to conform ourselves, transform to the scripture by the renewing of our minds. This, we look to the scriptures, we look to ourselves, we look to the scriptures, we look to ourselves. We allow the Lord to transform us. We are not going to find ambiguities where they don't exist. We're not going to live lives and justify them because everybody else is doing it. Or doesn't God just have lots of grace? Yeah, you know what it cost him for that grace? The cross. Let's not take it lightly. All of us sin, and all of us need forgiveness. There's no question about that. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect or you don't belong in church. It's absurd. You, you need to be in church because you're not perfect. I need to be in church because I'm not perfect. God promises us that forgiveness will come when we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he can only be just in that because he's already paid the justice. He's paid the price. So he can forgive you. And he's the only one who can. So grace, absolutely. If you're a person looking for Jesus Christ and his grace, it is there for you and it is there for you. I... I live in and love and rely on his grace every moment of every day. I rely on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do anything that I do. I cannot, I cannot live without it. He has made me so reliant on him that my trust has had to grow and grow and grow for him. So it's not, I'm not saying we teach, the, we teach the, the, the word of God and all the things that you're doing wrong so you can understand how bad. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is, is that there's grace, but there's truth. I want you to understand what grace costs so that we don't treat it cheaply. Do not treat it cheaply. God's got a call on your life. Don't waste your time. He wants to see you be fruitful. Because the church is called to rebuke and discipline those who refuse to repent who refuse to turn from their sin. That's a reality. There are a number of teachings that we have to hold to in the scripture that are very hard. If we're to love Jesus first and love his law, and if we're to love each other, and that's where we'll pick up next week with some of those things that are really hard. So don't miss. If you can, if you can possibly be here, we'd love to see you next week. Um, let's... Uh, let me say a couple of things. One, if you don't know Jesus, you've come in here today, you're online, wherever you are, you don't know Jesus. You've been checking it out. You're just a guest this morning. We welcome you if you are. You don't really know what it means to be forgiven. You don't really know what it means to follow him. You don't really know what we're all doing here. Today is the day for you. There is no reality more true than Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead his death on the cross. These, these are historical facts. This is not some spiritualized thing that I'm telling you. Christianity is built not on fables, legends, or spiritualisms that are out there somewhere. Christianity is, is sitting on one fact, historical fact, that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. If that is not true, there's no spiritualizing that. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are wasting our time here. But he did. He did. And hundreds of people witnessed that. 
And, and those witnesses have been spreading the gospel generation by generation by generation by generation to today. And you are hearing that from me right now. And I hope the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. We're going to take communion here in a second. You guys can go ahead and start passing it out. If you're a Christ follower, you don't have to be a member of the church or anything like that. We don't even do membership. Um, if you're called here, you're called here. Um, but if you're here with us today and you are a Christ follower, please take communion with us. If you're not a Christ follower, let it pass. There's, no, you, there's nothing special about you taking it. It would mean nothing to you. But it can mean something to you if you're not a Christ follower. If you will give your life to Jesus today, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we'll get you baptized, and you'll start learning. We'll start teaching you to obey all that he's commanded. And you will have a life that's actually going towards the thing that you were made for. And so if that's you today, I just want to give you the opportunity that as, after we take communion, and while we're singing, because we're going to sing a last song, that you would just walk out those doors right back here, and there will be pastors, elders, maybe some deacons back there ready to pray with you. Just come out and just say, I just want to follow Jesus. Now, if you need prayer for anything else, you're going through something, and you got a sickness, we'll lay hands on you. We'll pray for you. We're here to pray for you. So during the song, if you need that, just go right back there through those doors and tell somebody you need prayer. We'll pray for you. Let's pray, and then we'll take you in together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for all that you are, all that you do. You're so good, Jesus. I pray that as a church, we would stay strong in our commitment to love you first, to love your law and your word, your scripture, and to love people and each other, that we would love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we would love our neighbor as ourselves, and that we would live like you, we would imitate you and imitate one another as we imitate you. We would be a good example to one another and we would be an example to the world of what it looks like to be in you, Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Please forgive our sins. Each one of us now, confess our sins. Help us to confess our sins to you and our heart to you. That you might make us pure and right and holy that we can take communion with a clear conscience and a clear heart. Let us commit to living the right way. We love you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.